Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Form3.tech podcast. My name is Adelina Simeon, and I'm a technology evangelist at Form3. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by my colleague, Cyril. They are here to compare Go and Rust. This is going to be a spicy fight for the ages, the crab versus the gopher. How's it going today, Cyril? Hey, Adelina. Yes, it's, it's quite good, despite the rain here in England. I think, I think it's a nice morning. Yeah, it's uh, pretty dark over here as well. Let's begin with some introductions, since you're a first-time podcast guest. Tell us what you do at Form 3 and how you got into Rust. Sure thing. Yeah, what I do at Form 3 is a very good question. Sometimes I'm... Uh, you know, each day is different, let's say. <laughs> My uh, official title is uh, I'm a head of transaction management engineering, which means I'm responsible for like the people that make the software and also the resulting software uh, for managing transactions and the generic part of transaction management. And uh, how I got into Rust is a very good question. I probably just saw it on the internet somewhere. It's like, oh, wow, this is small and weird and I like kind of weird things. Uh, so I got interested in, in it and I started reading and this was probably around the time when Rust was becoming 1.0. So this is, I, I don't remember exactly, maybe this is like 2015, something like this. And I was like, oh, this is weird. This is not like anything else I know. So by that time, I probably uh, understood languages kind of like C, C++, etc. on one side. And then also I had like a .NET and Java background on the other side. And Rust was like neither. And I was like, what's going on here? So, yeah. And then, then kind of went, went on from, from that. Like before the podcast, I actually checked because I was very unsure of the dates. And I can see that I have some commits to the compiler in 2016. So by 2016, I probably uh, was into Rust. <laughs> Wow, that's really cool. I didn't know you had made commits to the Rust compiler. Yeah, a lot of people did. It's like 2,000 people probably or something. So so Rust is just slightly younger than Go, or how long has it been going for? It's a very good question. So um, I think it's it depending from, from which point you count, right? I think 1.0 is like 2015, but it's probably 9 or 10 years prior and actually started as a project. Uh, I think it's 2006. It was like a research, small research project, and then it grew from there. So I have absolutely no idea about Go, so you need to tell me if 2006 is earlier or later. So I think Go itself, it's been GA since 2010, so it's 13 years old. And it was the big joke this year that Go is a teenager. So that's the only reason I remember. <laughs> Okay, fair enough, fair enough. So probably, like, if you count the stable version, it's probably a bit younger, yeah, as a, as a project. Yeah, I've got the opposite problem that I don't know Rust at all. I only know Go. So can you begin with explaining some of the fundamental language concepts? And I've done a little bit of research, so um, I'll be able to ask some questions with Good. how things are done in Go. Yeah, perfect. So I don't know, like, my, my brain works... Weirdly, but in, in my brain, there's this scale from like JavaScript to Haskell, let's say. You can talk about different uh, properties of languages on this scale, right? So JavaScript is very, it's a super popular 
right? It's like everyone knows JavaScript. Haskell is, is much more niche. Uh, but also, JavaScript is like super dynamic, right? And not very statically typed. And Haskell is very much statically typed, right? So Rust on this scale uh, is much closer to Haskell. So if you think of, of a language that is like very strong compiler, statically typed, bit more niche maybe, this is Rust. And talking about kind of language features, so I, I've mentioned the Rust is, is not something I've seen before. And the reason for that is most of Rust is, is probably familiar to people if uh, they've programmed in other languages, right? So you can probably go and start reading and probably get a sense for it. Like it is the feeling you get is uh, the, the idioms are very functional. I think it's officially called multi-paradigm language, but like, you know, how people actually write it is, is, is quite functional. But there's one thing that is, is very different and I haven't seen before. And like to this day, it's, you know, very, not very popular in languages, which is the, the whole memory management story, right? So it says neither garbage collected uh, nor manual ma memory management. It's kind of something else. And this is, this is just, uh, it's just weird. <laughs> yeah, I was reading about it because first in the official docs it says it's not garbage collected. But then I went on some threads and they said that it is garbage collected. And then I read that it's similar to how things work in C++ where you have destructors. So can you explain a little bit more? Because there's really, it's unclear information out there. Okay. No, no, that's that's fair. So I, in C++ there is this idiom. It's, it's not like a language feature, let's say, but there's this idiom called uh, a resource allocation is initialization, right? So basically, to, to kind of write clean code in C++, you allocate resources, well, maybe the resource lifetime is tied to the object lifetime, right? And then when you uh, delete something, when you distract something, you also implicitly... Uh, release all the resources, right? So if you have like an open file or you have like a network socket or something, all of this is going to be uh, released on uh, on destruction. And, and this is an idiom. This is not something that is, is like a super language feature, let's say. On the other hand, you have like Go or Java or things like those where it just has... Um, where it just has garbage collection, right? So you, you allocate things and they are alive for at least uh, the, the length of time you need them for. But quite often they're alive for like much longer, right? So you have this garbage collection phases and the garbage collection comes and looks at the whole thing and is like, oh, okay, this is still used. I'm going to leave it. The other thing is not used. I'm, I'm going to uh, destroy it. But you don't have control of when this is happening. Rust is very much on the side of you're always going to know when things get distracted, right? So if you think about like overall system properties of that, what this gives you is things that are very predictable in timing. So in Go, it's maybe less pronounced than in Java. In Java, you know, especially in the, in the old days, you could see in the latency of your product when the garbage collection happened. Go, if you put a lot of pressure into it, it you will also see that, right? Like maybe you have like a web server, and some requests are slower, some requests are faster. 
because some requests are happening during the GC and some requests are not. Um, Rust is the opposite of that. Like, it's extremely predictable when it comes to latency because you always know where things going to get distracted. Um, whether to call it garbage collector or not, like I don't know. <laughs> I think uh, my intuition around this, or like how I was how I was brought up with the the the, the language, you know, was that it's not garbage collection, uh, but it's also not manual memory management. Um, basically, Rust how it works is you have predefined notion of object lifetime, and if you imagine a scope in the language, so quite often you have a function and maybe you have then a subscope in that, maybe you have like, a, basically, you know, you just think where your curly braces go, right? And each of these scopes can create things in there and they get distracted when they exit the scope, which means that the compiler looks at the whole code and it figures out where things need to be distracted and inserts the destruction code just at that point in time. So it's not a separate process, it's not a separate thread that goes in the background and looks at the things dynamically. It's very much done during the compilation phase. Does it kind of make sense? It makes sense. I'm just wondering, like, so if you you have to write the destructor, right? Hmm. And if you don't do that correctly, does that, let's say I forgot to clean up another thing that was supposed, let's say you've got a nest, I don't know if you can do nested types, but let's say that something like that would happen because I imagine I could do that in C++. Does that mean that I'm leaking memory? Oh, it's a very good question. So and maybe this is like an overall trait of Rust that it has a lot of these things that you can do, but most people don't do them. So, uh, and this is true for writing destructors. Like destructor is, is um, how it's implemented as a drop method in, in Rust. But like almost no one actually writes them. Uh, you write a destructor where you have like a very intricate thing that its memory or its resources are not managed by Rust. So you imagine you, you're calling maybe like a C library and it has its own like memory situation going on or you're writing, I don't know, a device driver in Rust or something, then yeah, then you probably want to implement like uh, bring up and deinitialization and distraction yourself. But in most cases, you just rely on the built-ins in the language or in the libraries, right? So you, you just write your code very high level and you just rely on the fact that everything's going to be cleaned up at the end of a scope and that's it. And you've mentioned that, you know, maybe you have a type and it has a field of a different type. Yeah, all of this works automatically. You, you typically don't need to write any of this, basically, yourself, which I think is cool. Yeah, it's really cool. So this is why people, you've answered it very quickly, this is why people say that Rust is very performant, right? Mm. Because it doesn't have these interrupts where the garbage collector would run, which Go does suffer from, let's be serious. Mm. I've got another question. So you've covered performance, but another thing that people say Rust really shines at is code readability. Uh-huh. Well, I think the you know the syntax is different, obviously. Can you just tell us a little bit, like how easy is it to get started? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, no, that's 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 pretty fast. So I, I think Rust the language it is quite readable. Rust the syntax. Like I, I have some opinions on, you know, it can, can, be, can be good, can be bad in some places. It is uh, quite verbose. So Rust is errs on the, on the side of 
everything being super explicit. So there are not many things that are actually implicit in Rust, and uh, where you don't see them in a code, they're kind of still there, but the compiler figures out them for you, but it doesn't mean they're not there. It's a fairly complex language, I would say. There's a lot of things going on, and uh, it's definitely not like Go when it comes to like how easy it is to learn, right? From what I understand, Go was actually designed, one of the design goals was like, hey, we have a lot of new people and we want to have them learn this language fairly fast, right? And I think Go is very good with that because you, it's kind of very familiar, like whichever language you come from, it's, 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 it's very familiar. You can read Go, you can write Go pretty quickly. It doesn't mean you're going to be like super fluent or it doesn't mean you're going to know all the idioms, but you can get started quite quickly. With Rust, I think... Um, because it has a new concept, this is what people get stuck at. So, for example, if you have someone that is very experienced in programming, but they don't know Rust, and they would approach it, uh, learning Rust, as they would approach learning any other language, I think they can get very frustrated. And I've seen this quite often. So what happens, and they're like, oh, I'm going to pick it up in a weekend. And they start, and it works. And then they get stuck, and it's like, oh, what's going on here? So I think Rust is, is very interesting in that point. It forces you to kind of learn it properly in a sense. Like, you know, there's the, the Rust book, which is excellent. It's like an amazing introduction to the language, but you kind of need to read the book. You know what I mean? It's not like, oh, I'm going to skip five chapters and I'm going to read one page situation. No, not really. And, you know, different people learn differently. So some people learn best when they kind of read the book and then they do some exercises. And the official Rust language book is, is amazing. And some people learn kind of the, the opposite way. So they do some exercises, they get stuck, and then they need to research why. So there's also a lot of uh, resources around that, like Rust links or Rust by example or all these things. So basically what I'm trying to say is that don't expect for this to be uh, super quick. But it can be very fun because the people contributing to the language itself, they understand that this can be a problem. And the whole community and tooling and documentation is built around learning. And I found it like amazing tooling that kind of tries to help you. It tells you like, oh, actually, you know, maybe you're going to try this, you're going to try that. Um, compiler errors are amazing. You know, uh, documentation is very good. And the community is like extremely friendly. You can just go on the internet, ask. People are not going to, uh, you know, have snarky comments because you don't know something. Yeah, it's really interesting that you say about the high learning curve, about the steep learning curve that when you're just starting with Rust. Um, I was looking at, at the docs and one of the things that got me immediately was the way that you move that references work in Rust. So they were showing that x1 equals 5 and then when they do x2 equals x1, the data is moved from x1 to x2 and x1 is now empty. And without reading the docs, that would really surprise me as a gopher. So would you say that the, the Rust is centered around data? Right, 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 right. Cool, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So in a lot of languages, you have this situation where data lives very close to the functions uh, that operate on the data. So like you have Java or c -sharp. And you have classes there, and you have you know you have your fields, and you have your methods, and uh, everything lives together. In Rust, it doesn't need to be like that. You can separate data definitions and functions, 
but quite often it is still still the case. But you can also do a lot of other things. I think what you've mentioned about the move is quite interesting because it has led to like Rust-specific idioms that you can have. So things I haven't seen too much in other languages. One of those I can think of is if you want to model a state machine. You know, in our world, in, in payments, let's say you have a payment, and first you need to validate it, then you need to uh, send it to the gateway, and then it's maybe it's like in a final state or something like that, right? If you were to model this in Rust, what you would probably do is you would have separate types for each of the states. So you would have like payment, like new payment, and then you have you would have uh, validated payment, and then you would have like payment sent to gateway, and then you would have like payment in final state. And these would be separate types. These would not be other things, especially if this is like a complicated state machine, right? You can do it like on a smaller scale, and this would just be an enum in Rust. But quite often, if you have like a whole state machine and you have like functions to transition between states, etc., how would you model it? Is it like a, it's a, it's a whole its own type, and then you have a function. So, for example, you want to validate the payment. This validate function gonna fully consume. So you're gonna move the payment into that function. And it's gonna cease exist. You cannot use it anymore. And what comes out is validated payment. It's a new type, it's a new, it's a new value that comes out of that. But the power of this is that you cannot then ever use things that reference the previous state because you've moved. You've already in a different state. Another example I can think of I've seen quite a lot is, let's say you are, are looking through a file system and you're reading a file and some of these files are, I don't know, pictures or, or, or image files. So you first reference everything with a type of a file, but then when you detect it's a picture, you consume the file and you get like a image file uh, or something like that. It is super powerful because it uh, means that you cannot like write bugs that reference previous states. You cannot reuse things that don't have any meaning anymore. It's weird. This is the part where people kind of get surprised by it, you know. But it leads you to design patterns that you may know from other languages. It just kind of forces you into them a bit more than in, in other languages, if you will, right? I like this way of saying that you're moving to a different type, so it's less mutability. It's less like dangling pointers mm. and stuff yes. like that, which we do suffer from in Go. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to diss Go too much, but yeah, exactly. So I, I, another thing that's connected to that is um, there's no null. So there's no null pointer situation. Yeah, so it's, it's it's the whole kind of package that you get. You have you have um, very much focus on kind of modeling problems in the type system, and all the things that come with that. By the way, don't feel bad. I'll say the bad things about Go, and then the, your hands can stay clean. Another cool thing that I saw in the docs was matching. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I thought it was like really a nice way to. Maybe do like functional programming? A bit, yeah. I think it comes from functional programming. So uh, pattern matching is, is present in a lot of places. Uh, you can do things like destructuring using it. So you have like a one thing, you know, like a function returns something, but you actually want to destructure it into multiple variables. 
yeah, you can like match on this, it's beautiful. But what probably most people encounter first is just match the block. You can match a lot of, on a lot of things, but quite often you match on uh, enums. So enums can have just a finite number of, uh, again, of states. <laughs> the match block needs to be exhaustive. So for example, you have an enum that represents, I don't know, some state, let's say that we, we're going to redo the previous example, and instead of having like separate types, we just have one enum, and uh, it has like new, and then validated, and then let's say uh, final, right? So there are three possible values. If you were ever to refactor this code and add a new value, all the places that reference this enum that match on it, this will stop compiling. Compiler would be like, ah, you have one more thing to think about here, you haven't handled it just yet. Think about what you want to do here. And this is like typically how Rust behaves. So um, there's, a, there's a big emphasis on like thinking about things up front. So yeah, to me, this is, this is in a package <laughs> with error handling and all the friends, right? Because quite often you, you return something from a function and quite often, you know, like something can fail, right? So in Go, you, you have this tuple-ish situation where you return something, but also you return an error, and one of those will be, quote-unquote, empty, right? Uh, in Rust, you don't return both. You always return one or either, and you use a results type for that. And the result type is an enum. It's just a normal enum, which means that can only have one of these two things. It's never both of them at the same time. So you will not have a situation where you... For example, you like can't check for error, right? Like, or you will forget to check for error, or you can't have a situation where you've read the value, but you shouldn't have read the value because there was an error. Like, the value is not there at all because enum represents like you know it's either this or that, but it's not a both situation. Yeah, I was gonna ask you anyways about the error handling because everyone hates the if error not equal nil, and in any case. I know it was made for like uh, for safety and go, but in any case, you can still disregard it. You can just like drop the error and then just continue on merrily. So you said this result type is it built into Rust? Mm. The result type. So yeah, it is in the standard library. There is a result and there is an option type as well. So option represents like there may be something there or maybe not. So like you know you would use like a, oh it's a. It's a, it's a null pointer maybe versus it's not a null pointer situation. And result type is similar, but it's just an enum that has two values. You can absolutely create your own instead and use it instead, and it's fine. It's, there's nothing special about it. It's not like a built in the language. It's just part of a library. So yeah, I, I think, you know, go. it's good that the error handling is up in front, right? That you the people kind of tend to care about the return values, right? In a lot of languages like C and C++, you know, like how I, how, how I think about the Go situation is that this is a bit of a trauma after like C, C++ and other things where people would just like not check anything, right? There's a lot of standard library functions uh, in C where in theory they return an error somewhere, but like no one ever checks it, you know, it's fine, we're gonna go, it maybe it's gonna be okay. In Go, I think it's better, like a culture around it. People tend to write the if error. To me, like the maybe only problem I have with that is um, it's hard to see the algorithm 
like what does the function actually do if there's like a five if error, right? Like just visually, the if error just 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 amps out, just jumps out at me uh, in Rust. And this is actually a newer development, so Rust hasn't started with it. But now it dies. Rust has the question mark operator. Basically, let's say you have like a fallible function, like a, I don't know, read file or something, right? And it returns the result. Most often, the idiom in Rust is you do file equals read file question mark. That's it. So it's a one line, right? And what this means is the read file returns the result. And to use the, the, the thing, the file, you need to like unpack it, right? You need to look whether it's an error or not, and you need to do something with the error. The question mark does all of this. So basically, it looks at, oh, is this an error? I'm going to return from that function and return this error. So it's effectively the same thing. It's like if error, da, 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 the return error. But if it's not, then the value of this expression is the is the is the thing you wanted is not the error is the is the uh, result itself and uh, it's conceptually equivalent to the if error in go it's just is visually much smaller and that's it yeah a lot of people are complaining that you have can have a very simple function in go that can like just be huge because of all the hmm. possibly unlikely errors that could happen so one last thing I want to touch upon is object-oriented. We always say that Go is not object-oriented because it does not support inheritance, but you can make custom types. And then I peeked a little bit at Rust and I got confused very quickly, so then I stopped reading. Um, and I saw that there were structs, enums, traits, and impl blocks. So can you explain those to us? And then you've already mentioned some design patterns, so I believe that you can do some OOP in Rust. Hmm, okay. Yeah, OOP is interesting. So I think it depends who you ask, like what OOP is, right? <laughs> uh, you, you can go for like, oh, it's, it's, it's an actor model and you send messages and, you know, everyone is happy. Like the original small talk kind of meaning of OOP um, I think very little number of languages are kind of like that. But you can also say like, oh, I have a, I have a variable dot function, therefore it's OOP. And like, yeah, in that sense, Rust is, is, is object-oriented because you can do variable dot, dot function. You know, in, in most languages, whether they are object-oriented or not, the resulting code after compilation is, is kind of, there are no objects there. Right, there are functions and there are there is data, so in that sense, uh, you know, Rust. I don't know, is it OP or not? You can have functions operating on the data, and you have a convention why um, if the functions only operate on the, on this specific data defined here, you specify an impl block, and then this gives you. Uh, they, they these functions are called methods then, and you can just use the syntax where you do like variable dot function name and it operates on this variable. This is purely like a sugar situation, right? Outside, like flavor wise, I would say Rust is much more functional than it is OOP. Like there are not many OOP patterns when you write Rust. This is much more functional. It's much more like I have a collection and then I'm gonna map over it. I'm gonna filter. And then I'm gonna, you know, do other stuff, kind of map reduce situation much, much, much more often than in like OOP languages. 
So yeah, sorry, we, we talked about structs uh, a bit, maybe. So structs is, is, is your type definition. So you just have a bunch of fields. Uh, then you have input blocks if you want to add kind of quote-unquote methods to the structs. This is in most cases what's what you want to do. And the traits are interesting. So the traits are again something that is maybe less popular in other languages, except for Haskell. <laughs> so in Haskell, these are uh, type classes. It's the same thing. So the closest thing in other languages is interfaces. So basically you want to say that you have this specific interface and some types may implement that interface. In Go, this is all implicit, right? Like if it looks like the thing you want, you can use it through the interface, it's beautiful. Uh, Rust, again, is on a very different side of the scale where everything is very explicit. So you want you need to say that, hey, I want this uh, type to be used through that interface and therefore like impl block for a trait for that type and you say, how should the methods look like for this trait for that type? And this is quite powerful because you can implement standard traits, standard interfaces on your own types, and then you can use them with like a bajillion methods from a standard library. So you can make your own RNR collection look like a standard collection, and then all iterators or map filter, you know, map reduce things work. Uh, you can use, you can write your own, I don't know, file reader thing, make it look like a reader-writer read interface. Like, I'm pretty sure, you know, like, in Go, this is also quite popular, right? Like, you implement read, you implement write, and everything works. It's kind of the same, kind of the same feeling. Oh, I think you explained it very well. Um, in the docs, they said, well, I'll show you how to implement design patterns, but then we'll also show you how to use Rust to its strengths. So while you can make it behave like OOP, Perhaps you shouldn't. <laughs> That's what I kind of understood. Um, but when it comes to actually OP, because you said there's varying definitions, I do get the feeling like it's very similar to what you can do in Go, where we also have structs and methods and then the interfaces work a little bit differently. But, you know, the fundamentals are there. The last one last thing I want to cover. I keep saying that it's one last thing, but I have many questions. No, that's okay. Like I'm, I'm, I'm getting warmed up. It's okay. <laughs> um, is the tooling? So the Go tool chain really makes Go shine. And how does the mm -hmm. developer tooling work, like in Rust? And how Ooh, does I have opinions oh, here. And how does dependency <laughs> management work? Because I read something about crates and cargo. So can you cover that for us? Yes, yes, yeah, for sure. So. I I don't know if controversial, especially for a lot of people that, you know, use guy listen to this podcast, but Rust tooling is so much better. So much better. <laughs> so um, I think now Go is kind of catching up. The distance is becoming smaller. I think that's awesome. Like awesome for everyone, right? But I remember in Go all this situation where you like set some magic environment variables, then you run something, then stuff happens, that some things download from the internet and some of them don't, and now something doesn't work, you know, and you spend half a day debugging this. Um, at that point in time, Rust already had the tooling that it has <laughs> right now. Uh, so I remember at that point in time, it was like, it was huge difference. Like Rust... You know, it's a, it's a fairly modern language. And I love the fact that people really care about the tools. 
like the compiler itself, but also there's a cargo, which is like do everything tool, right? So cargo is like your build system, dependency manager, release tool, everything, right? And um, I actually don't know if that's true in Go, but you can write plugins very easily, right? So you, you can write a plugin into Cargo super easily and you add, add a new command and it's there and it's there for like everyone using that. So um, yeah, anyway, I, I really like it. <laughs> uh, maybe to, to give Go you know, some, uh, some points here, uh, Go tooling is much faster, for sure, right? So if you if you have this like you, you you're super into like your small feedback loop on your local machine, go to links much much faster, right? It's a simpler language, and they they by design they made it simpler so it's easier to learn. But it's also very fast to compile. From what I remember, this was one of the design goals for Go. As like kind of the compiler is simple, it's fast, right? And it shows it's super fast. One of the biggest complaints people have about Rust candidate today is the compilation speed. It got much better over time. Now it's kind of okay-ish. But um, it's a complex language. Compiler helps you a lot. It tells you a lot. Hey, like maybe you want to do it this way, that way. Um, Jenny, there's this feeling in Rust where you, especially when you're refactoring, right? That you have lots of tests, you refactor, nothing compiles for half a day. You know, because Rust is like, hey, how about this thing here? How about this thing there? And then it compiles, and then all the tests are green, and you release, and it's beautiful, right? In other languages, my experience at least is that you do, you you refactor, and then it compiles, and then you spend a lot of time actually fixing stuff, right? Like Rust, because the compiler is so strong. It doesn't let you go to like, hey, it's good, it compiled until everything is actually fixed, which is very, very useful in larger projects. If you have a lot of people, you have a lot of code, and you want to refactor something that's very old, you can feel much safer, right? So yeah, the, the initial feedback loop is slower, but overall, I would say you can be maybe even faster in Rust. Yeah, tooling, I love, you know, there is a lot of small things I love there. Uh, like uh, the documentation tests. So, for example, like I think in Go as well, you have the um, doc strings, right? You can you can add documentation kind of in line, and then it's gonna get rendered, right? That's cool. Uh, what Rust also has on top of that is if you use a code example in in this. So, for example, you have a, you have a function, and on top of a function, you have like oh, this function does this, blah blah blah. Here's an example. Rust compiler is gonna look at it like oh, it's code. I'm going to compile it. I'm going to see if it's working, which means that all your of examples they cannot get out of date because they actually get compiled and they're going to get checked against your newest code. Uh, you know, stuff like this. Like, there's a lot of small things like those that I really enjoy. Like, tools are amazing, in my opinion. <laughs> I must admit, this doc test that you just noticed, that you just mentioned, really got me excited. I was like, wow! <laughs> yeah, it seems like a simple thing, but it's like, none of your examples now get out to date. It's, it's amazing. And there's a lot, lot of stuff like this. There's built-in benchmarking, built-in you know, debugger support, lots of cool stuff. Well, you know... From what you've told me today, I'm definitely going to go and try and learn a little bit Rust. So um, you've definitely piqued my interest. The final question, and I really mean the final question that I'd like to ask you is, how do you see the future of Rust? Do you see it 
continuing to grow. Right. So I know already of some companies that are using Rust and Prod, and these are Dropbox, Figma, Cloudflare, and probably more. So how do you see the future of Rust? Right. So I think it's it's kind of interesting because we probably want to talk about the the niches in which people kind of feel that Rust is, is, is the thing. So I would say it's either kind of quote-unquote very small software, it's like embedded devices, you know, IoT. Uh, I know there's there's an effort to make Rust certified for automotive recently, right? Like Because the only other language actually certified you can write firmware in a C, but there's, there's an effort to make Rust uh, certified there. Or like huge things, like Dropbox server farm is in Rust, you know? Uh, things like those. Uh, I think NPM, the JavaScript uh, package manager, the backend is in Rust now, uh, from what I understand. So I think it's going to be conti- going to continue being strong in those two extremes, right? So because in in both extremes, resources matter a lot. Like in your embedded devices, maybe you have I don't know sixty four k of RAM or something. And also embedded devices live in the real world. So they need to be, the timing needs to be very predictable. You would not write, I don't know, a pacemaker care in Go because you have GC and, you know, maybe it's a bit slower, maybe it's a bit faster, right? We probably don't want that. Either devices like those or like a huge backend stuff where, you know, making something 10% faster is like millions of dollars. In the middle, Rust is, is there as well. You can absolutely write your like REST API in Rust, and it's there's good frameworks. Just I think less people use it commercially. A lot of people use it for kind of fun stuff, uh, but I think the commercial applications are either on the very small or very big side. Also, things that kind of are in between that needs to be very small and very secure. Uh, so there is a lot of tooling now that can monitor your processes. All the observability stuff is in Rust typically because you can inject it in your process in other language and it's very small, it's very controlled, it's not going to explode your process, you know, uh, stuff like this. So, yeah, in my opinion, you know, it's going to grow in these directions and then language itself, I can see it's stabilizing a bit maybe because it had a very huge development when it comes to like language features over the last few years. I think it's going to slow down a bit. And uh, Rust still has this guarantee that, you know, no, no breaking changes, basically, as I think code does, right? Uh, so I think it's going to continue to be like that. Um, I hope sometime in the future, maybe we're going to see Rust 2.0 that does some breaking changes, actually. But I, I haven't seen anyone talking about this, actually, uh, seriously as much. I hope community is going to continue being excellent. It's like one of the most welcoming communities in programming languages I've seen. Like super inclusive and diverse. Yeah, and the power of community should not be underestimated because the easier and the more welcoming it is, the more people pick up the language and the more success it will have in adoption and production. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat to us and tell us all about Rust. It's been really informational. I learned a lot from you and you explained it in a very um, easy way to understand. Are there any final shout outs that you want to give out? Okay, so maybe if you want to learn Rust, yeah, again, just, uh, just, just try and reach out to the community. Like Forum is excellent. 
all the chats, you know, are excellent. And just, yeah, just just try it out, you know, and see, see what happens. Maybe you like it. All right, we'll link the um, docs and the book that, that Sarah was talking about in the episode notes so mm. people can, can see it. Yeah. So thank you so much. I hope you had fun. Yeah, happy learning, everyone. See you, bye. Thank you for listening to the Dot Take podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to learn more about us, visit form3.tech.